I mean, I took some crazy drugs that people claimed were LSD. I don't know what the fuck they were, what they put in them. That's the, bad, know, brown, that's the bad brown acid. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. I don't yeah. know what, it, you know, blood or acid and all that stuff. I don't know what the hell it was. But yeah. I don't think I ever had anything quite as, as good and pure again as after that first time. But it was maybe it was just the fact that it was the first experience. I don't know. But wow, it was something. It was something. I remember I, I took it on a Saturday with my first wife, Dana, we both took it. And then I had to go to work on Monday. I, I went into the green card company and I, I just looked around. This is just a cardboard, cardboard world. Hello. You're listening to the Jerry Hyde podcast. And why not? As someone who's been dubbed the most dangerous therapist in the world, I've spent over 25 years talking to people and in all that time, I've never met a boring person. Because when you really get inside them, when you really open up and find out what makes them tick, every single one of them is a unique container for extraordinary experiences, fantastic stories and radical ideas. That's something I can promise you about this show is that we will always feature incredibly unusual game-changing, rebellious, convention-shattering, and above all else, exceptional people. And that's because everyone has the capacity to be that if you take the time to get to know them. And then together, maybe, we can make this the most dangerous podcast in the world. Okay, I know I say every time you're in for a bit of a treat, but really you're in for a bit of a treat here. It's Robert Crumb. Never expected that to happen. Um, He's a very private man, and I have to say I was quite surprised when he said yes to doing the show. So, uh, and I was equally surprised when uh, I discovered what a delightful man he is to talk to. I found him funny and engaging and fascinating, and fuck me, he's lived a life. You know, he's been right at the heart of that whole 1960s subculture thing, and whether you are aware of his work or not, part of the tapestry of that whole movement you know it's impossible to think of san francisco and that whole 60s scene without thinking of robert crumb so you know whether you know about him or not you're in for a really really interesting conversation here because he's a really extraordinary man and he's got some stories to tell and i found him really fun company for the brief time that we spent together so i hope that rubs off on you as well. So here he is, Robert Crumb. Hello? Hey, Mr. Crumb, Hyde calling. Hyde, okay. All right. So you guys just going into lockdown again, yeah? Yeah, everybody's in a tizzy about this now. They're reinstituting this lockdown. It's really stupid. I don't know why they're doing it, what they what the fuck they think they're doing. You know, I read all kinds of conspiracy stuff that, you know, people asserting ideas like that. It's, it's a tactic for world, more world government control and stuff like that. I don't, who knows? Who the hell knows what's really going on? I, I certainly wouldn't presume to, you know, make come to any conclusion about it. Yeah, I'm, norm- I'm normally a sucker for a good conspiracy theory, but I, t- yeah. I gotta say, I just haven't got the energy for any of that shit since COVID kicked in. <laughs> you know, really, man, there's enough crap to deal with without worrying about whether this this has been manufactured and it's all, you know, part of a way of controlling us. So, 
you know, I think if people want to be worried about that, they should be worried about social media more than viruses. Well, that too, that's a big part of it. That's yeah. A big part of it. All these conspiracy theories that I read about include all of that stuff. You know, you, know, you could all boil it down to, uh, I don't know, what, are you starting this podcast now or what? What are we? When does this thing start? Oh, yeah, we're in. Okay, well, you could start with Greta Thunberg. Oh, yeah, go. <laughs> Greta Thunberg. She's like the, the child prophetess that came out of Sweden, out of the north, and just told it like it was, told it like it is to the world. Mm. And and uh, she was kind of like a, a, a just a, the pointer to, to the handwriting on the wall. The handwriting was there, and she just pointed at it in a way that was so eloquent and so powerful yeah. for a child to do that. You know, she kind of just brought the whole thing to the surface, and there might be—it might be that there's like some serious consideration going on among the top levels of power and financial influence in the world that they are instituting, because they have the wealth and the power to do it now. You know, the wealth got to this point of being so extreme. You know, Bill Gates and Bezos and all these people, the, the Mark Zuckerbergs and these people have so much wealth mm-hmm. that they're, they get, had their big summit meetings, you know, and and uh, I'm reading about one, you know, it's in the mainstream media that they had where the theme was sustainability. This mm-hmm. was recently, within the last couple of years. And that they have decided that on what some people call the, the, the big reset, the big, you know, reordering of priorities for the human race because somebody told them, some, you know, uh, think tanks, research institutes, somebody told them that actually the whole fucking, you know, uh, industrial civilization is actually now a threat to the continuation of human life. Yeah. Not, not just civilization, but human life itself. It's serious threat possible this is just a conjecture i don't know that and this is what greta thunberg says she says how dare you how dare you continue with this and lie to us and tell us this and that the other thing you know and she just brought it all to a head you know so they're they're seriously trying to shift everything away from these damaging threatening aspects of our industrial civilization that are could are causing you know possible ex, you know species what do you call it uh, extinction mm-hmm. <laughs> so <clears throat> that that includes the as, as quickly as possible shifting away from the use of fossil fuels is one thing and possibly even like chemicals and agriculture and stuff the, the Monsanto syndrome of you know shifting that they they realize this is all a big mistake and we got to get away from it. but how to do that how do you turn that around where the whole planet has been been made so dependent on those technologies and on those fossil fuels and chemicals and agriculture and all that stuff so how do you turn that around that's a big thing and that's, they say well it's going to cause some hardship one way or the other and also it's it's like away from traditional ideas of warfare, mm. which are just nothing but d- destructive, and then you have a whole 
system of of the or of aspect of the economy is completely dependent on this large scale warfare, the building of of missiles and jet fighters and and bombs and aircraft carriers and and all that all that stuff. So they that shift away from all of that. There's there's something the quite shift. there must be something quite glorious. I mean, certainly for me. Uh, as someone who's always been considered something of a misfit, there must be something quite uh, glorious for you about seeing a teenage autistic kid threatening these, <laughs> you know, it's like freaks of the world <laughs> unite, man. And, well, uh, you know, one geez. of my favorite things, I think, in the, in the last year is the, the image of her look to Trump. I can't remember the event when they were in the same room. The look in her fucking oh, eyes. Oh, that's right. That's right. The, it's it's the, worthy the, of one of your clenching of her jaw. Oh, it's just like, pure. Oh yeah, that was a powerful image. <laughs> powerful image of the anger and the, the clenching of her jaw. Yeah. When she yeah. saw Trump. Yeah. Yeah. That was a yeah. powerful moment. Yeah. Powerful moment. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So, and the world paid attention to that. Although that's just like a, I guess it's just kind of like a. Uh, the prophet revealing what's going on, you know, yeah. the, pro- the, the child prophet pointing yeah. to the handwriting on the wall. Yeah. So if it's this is big major shift, it's going to cause some hardship. I did it. And they, they want, so maybe that they just decided that lockdowns and the, 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 the fucking virus and all this stuff is just a way to start this process of, this major shift of the economy, and then to do this, it kind of like sort of re- to reset the economy away from all that stuff, the destructive element. But what's your what, what's your take? Because I, I'm an eternal optimist, even though that all the signs <laughs> aren't supporting that right now. But I'm an eternal yeah. optimist, and I, I remember when Trump got in, I remember saying to friends of mine, "Well, it's going to be good for art. It's going to be good for culture, in as much as." <laughs> You know, because right. you, you were there in the first yeah. wave, right? And I, I kind of wonder, you know, where would where would Baez or Bob Dylan or, you know, those amazing people be if they hadn't had so much to protest against? What if they'd been born in another era when there was, you know, not so much <laughs> obvious to protest against? And and I, I'm curious, well, as someone who was there, you know, very much at the heart of the first wave uh, of, of counterculture, the, the, you know, the what, 60s. yeah, what's this to me is that there's potential there. When I see all the people out protesting, probably, you know, never more so since the sixties, we're out on the streets now. Yeah. Do you see that? Do you see a kind of, is there any hope? <laughs> is there hope? Yeah. Well, there, where there's life, there's hope. Mm. And, you know, human race, you know, we have a, a, a in, high level of intelligence and it's a very sensitive nervous system. So possible that we could possibly make a huge uh, uh, evolutionary quantum leap possible and, and become start behaving more intelligently and, and less dis- self-destructively as a collective species. I don't know. There's some hope of that. It, you know, meanwhile, there are huge elements of human race that continue to act stupidly and ignorantly, you know, so I, I have no idea, really no idea if there's any hope or not. I don't know. I wouldn't presume to say, but I have, to, I have to have some hope since I have grandchildren who I dearly love and I'd like to see, you know, yeah. them 
in a, in a world that's where they're still able to thrive and, and realize their potential. Cause you, know, you see those little children, they're just so full of potential. It's heartbreaking. I look at them and it breaks my heart. It's tough, man. I mean, I've been a, a you know a follower of your work since, as far as I can remember. I mean, I'm 56 now. I mean, definitely, I was yeah. I was into you as a teenager, uh. and I was thinking, what was it that spoke to me? And I think at this stage of my life, people call me a shadow therapist. I'm very interested in shadow work. I'm not the kind of therapist that's interested in just blowing smoke up people's ass and making them feel better. I, I think if you want to be if you want to be a complete person, you need to go into some of your own darkness. And I was reflect, yeah. reflecting on your work and some of the criticisms of your work. And it actually yeah. it reminded me of um, American Psycho, which to me is one of the most heroic books ever written because it's so fucking vile and dark. I think that guy just, <laughs> he put his most, his, his, his most horrific demons out yeah. on the page for the world to see, yeah. and I take that thing right. that takes huge balls. And I would, I would put you in, you know, the category of, in my language, of a, a, sh- a kind of shadow worker. In that, you've uh-huh. really been revealing That's a lot of that man, you know. And, and I guess, you know, you've been quite outspoken about how psychedelics were part of that journey for you, and they yeah. certainly have been for yeah. me, you know, because uh-huh. like, psychedelics mm-hmm. are shadow work as well. If it, you know, unless unless you, you manage to dodge that bullet somehow, but. Uh, you know, you're you're, you're, you're kind of you're a kind of modern day Hieronymus Bosch. <laughs> uh, mm. I don't know if people have said that before, but yeah, 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 been called that. But it's but, you know uh, it's painful, isn't it, to look at the darker sides of humanity? You know, it's a horror. Are you kidding? Yeah. <laughs> As was it Castaneda has his, his character Don Juan telling him telling Carlos that the human race is in a horrifying state of chaos. Mm. <laughs> and if you, if you keep looking, if you just keep your eyes open and keep looking, yeah, you could be horrified by it, by it, the, the mess. But, you know, meanwhile, life goes on and, and, but yep, if you don't flag it up, and if, if you don't look at it and you don't flag it up, it creeps up on you. And that's that's what I see. It in does. It'll, it bites you on the ass if you don't look at it. Yeah, it no. will come around behind you and will you know, get you before you know it. Yeah. Yeah. Next thing you know, it's running the fucking country, right? <laughs> <laughs> running the planet, perhaps. But so what, I made, don't know. what made you move to France originally? Because you've been there a long time now been here 30 almost 30 years 29 years yeah yeah well originally it's the whole thing was motivated by my wife i would never have uh gotten the the will or the energy or even the the desire to move to france that had been for her she talked me into it she's a good salesperson. she comes from a long line of sales people and before i knew it i was living in france i <laughs> but you know, I, I spent the whole decade of the '80s bitching and complaining about what a horrible state um, the United States was in. So she just, you know, that she took it to heart. Said, "Okay, we're moving out of here, we're moving right. to France." And how, <laughs> how did you pick that part of France? Just because because she, she knew- came here to visit a friend of hers who had moved here, her friend Maxine, 
who had, an American woman who had moved here earlier, and thought, wow, this is, you know, she, I'm kind of reluctant to advertise how sweet and nice it is down here. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know. And so did, she, have you found kind of kindred spirits, particularly I'm thinking about, you know, your musical taste, which I can vibe with some of it, but it's, you know, it's not mainstream. That's, that's for sure. No, it's not, have you found no. people down there that, that you can play with or who get you? Not, not so much. No, I, I mostly, if I get together and play music with kindred spirits, they're usually people from the United States or British Isles, right. you know, right. usually. Like my friend Hennigan, the guy that I do those podcasts with, who also is a record collector, and you know he comes here periodically. Or used to before this, all this shit happened. He would come here and, and we'd play music and, and what, what's, records. What's your main instrument? Is it banjo? Now I play mostly. Uh, I've been for the last few years been playing baritone ukulele mostly. Oh, okay. Since I play backwards, you know I play upside down and backwards. Right. <laughs> So uh, the six string guitar is always sort of problematic for me, is because I my it's my two smallest fingers are are down there where the bass strings are, just okay. the opposite of for most people. So it's 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 always I never was very effective on the guitar. So I I found it was much easier for me the ukulele. And since music was always my second calling until recently, where now it's kind of taken much more primary place. But when it was when I was much more active as a illustrator and cartoonist, I just you know took the easy route. I played mandolin, tenor banjo, and ukulele mostly, which is are easier to play than guitar, piano, fiddle. Those are much harder instruments. Yeah. So I, I always played rhythms accompaniment to guys who were more accomplished lead players on those more harder instruments. You know. And when did you get into it originally? I thought it was nice. I I checked your Wikipedia just to refresh my my memory. Oh yeah, yeah. And and it, it's nice because huh. it lists you as a I think a cartoonist and musician. I thought it was nice to see you oh, yeah. kind of Wikipedia. You know, yeah, <laughs> huh. I have. I have to look at that. I haven't looked at it. Hmm. Yeah, no. I did, see what they did. say about me? It lists you as a musician, which I thought was good. But uh, when, when yeah. did you when did you get into it? And uh, you know, music. Yeah, yeah it started quite young. I, you know, I had always kind of powerful urge to play music. I, as a kid, there was nobody around me that that uh, played instruments or you know recognized that urge, powerful urge. So I like, tried making my own like cigar box ukuleles and stuff, mm. and, and then finally my mother kind of took notice that for Christmas one year, I was twelve, thirteen, something like. She bought me a plastic ukulele. <laughs> was uh, Arthur Godfrey brand ukulele mm. but then later in life decades later i turned it turned out that these plastic ukuleles were made by this french expatriate named mcafary who was a, a classical guitarist that we moved to america in the, in the post-war era of you know the, the burgeoning plastic industry he, he decided to make legitimate plastic instruments right one of which was this this Arthur God for ukulele, so I, that you know it worked. It worked as an instrument, so I I learned to play on that. And I just played that, and I didn't know I was playing backwards. 
you know, nobody around to tell me that I was playing backwards because I'm left-handed. That's so that's pretty. Just, there's there's a long tradition, isn't there? Of you know you you pick, yeah there is yeah I I pick I you know I've given up trying to work out some of the old the old amazing stuff, but you pick up your guitar and, or I'm a guitar player primarily. I have a mandolin as well, and I huh. try and try and play along with some of the old stuff. And you go, I have no fucking idea what tuning this is in because no one said to them this is you know this is how you uh. tune a guitar, so they would tune it to how they liked it, and then. You know, yeah, yeah. Robert Johnsons uh, and people like that, and so it's it's uh, virtually impossible to work out for someone like you know like <laughs> myself. Yeah, well, they had all those weird open tunings, you yeah. know, G tuning, D tuning, all that stuff that they did. Yeah, yeah. But I love that. I love that kind of. Oh yeah, oh yeah, beautiful stuff. The yeah. experimental aspect well, of that. Rural musicians, yeah, they're at all kinds of levels of formal education. Some really. Uh, very remote from any kind of you know what we think of as formal musical education. Yeah. So they'd learn from some other guy, and the guy would show them, "Here's a vestibule tuning," you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, my uh, my stepson is he's got a nice feel for piano, and yeah, um, mm -hmm. he's about he's about twelve, and he he was uh, you know they were studying to try and get him to learn to read music and he was fucking hating it and i was saying to his uh, mom just just don't do that to him don't it's really not important just just encourage that we call it playing for a reason right <laughs> and and it, well, i remember when i was a kid you know being told go upstairs and practice your guitar and i just used to sit upstairs and try and break the strings because i hate it. and it wasn't until i left home and really? i when really? i got a guitar huh. for myself and and remembered huh. that there's pleasure in huh. this you know mm. huh well yeah this is tricky thing about teaching kids to read music because i mean i know lots of musicians who are kind of uh, uh crippled by dependence on the on the written notes you mm. know they have they play music by uh you know from the eye to the hand rather than from the ear yeah you know yeah so I, I i i agree with i i would encourage people to, to encourage their kids to learn by ear first and then maybe later learn to read music so that then they then find tunes that they like and, and by written, you know, paper of music of the tunes and that which shows all the notes and the chord changes and everything properly if, you, if that's what you want to do. But I think learning to play by ear is the primary importance, I believe. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. I never learned how to read music. I don't, I don't know. I can't wait when people start discussing various uh, things about music in technical terms to do with reading. I, I lost. I don't know what they're talking about. Mm. Yeah, no, <laughs> it, it holds no crudest understanding of music theory. You know. So I mean, I, I mean, I guess from it's probably the same for you. One of the bigger frustrations of the whole lockdown shit is you know not being able to play with other musicians. Um, over the last six or nine months. Well, yeah, yeah, there's a kind of isolation, but, you know, I'm, I'm 77 years old, so, you know, I, I derive a certain pleasure just from sitting in my room by myself with my ukulele and figuring out tunes, you know. I I certain pleasure of that. and Tinkle on the piano a little bit, but mostly it's with those. And, you know, since I don't draw as much as I used to, I really actually made a big strides on, on that baritone ukulele and, it's great pleasure to be able to, to play full the the lead and the chords. Yeah. You know, the whole thing. Just so that it's 
that sounds cogent and, and complete just in and of by itself. You don't even need other instruments. Yeah, I think that's the appeal of music for me in many ways is I'm always able to get better at it. And, you know, I haven't kind of, I'm, when I when I feel I've learned something, when I've mastered something, if that's even possible, I get bored. Whereas music and therapy, I'm always learning. I'm always challenged. Huh. I'm always, you know, huh. it's, it's always, huh. it's always an open book somehow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And when you say you haven't been, um, you don't draw so much these days because not as much as I used to. And why is that? Oh, I, I don't know. Maybe I, I worked through the the reasons that made me such a compulsive artist. Maybe I've kind of gotten over some of that or something. And part of it is just the fame and recognition thing is uh, has a kind of like a backfiring effect of of acute self consciousness. <laughs> and that yeah. just becomes increasingly acute as, as the decades wore on, starting with the first uh, recognition in 1968 when I first started getting well-known among the hippies for my comics. It's immediately self-consciousness sits in. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, you tell somebody a joke off the top of your head and, and people laugh and say, hey, tell that joke again, you know. Mm. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yeah, that, I can imagine that's a it's a curse because how yeah. do you, how do you you know create freely when you are aware that there's going to be when they're sitting there waiting for you, the yeah. audience is there waiting for the next like clever thing, you know. Oof, yeah, that's, there's there's going to be a lot of expectations that you do yeah. you know, certain work. Um, that, that can be killer. I can kill people. That's mm, mm. <laughs> so, you know, rock stars take heroin because of that. Yeah, I always loved. Did, did you um? Did you know Janice and those guys personally? I always loved that album that you did for it was Big Brother and I, the Holding Company, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, I knew her. She was around the neighborhood, you know. She was, and she liked the comics. She liked she thought the comics were funny. So yeah, we hung out, smoked pot and stuff. She was a good natured girl from Texas, you know. But the same thing just destroyed her, yeah. just wrecked her. Yeah, and I, I saw her become increasingly surrounded by sycophants that just, oh, just suck her blood. They're just these awful vampires, both male and female, yeah. surrounded by this this girl crew that were just like feeding her worst weaknesses for drugs and alcohol and stuff just to, to please her, to stay in her circle. Oh, it was just awful. It's a disgusting thing to see, to behold. And she was kind of innocent. Jazz was innocent. Yeah. Yeah, you can hear that in her work, really, can't you? Yeah. So, and how and, did you know, how? Sorry, go on. She was insecure. You know, she was kind of homey, not real good looking, and a little bit pockmarked and stuff. You know, she was like a hillbilly. <laughs> she was sort of that, and, and I think her music was totally hillbilly. She should have never tried to go towards her, like the 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 thing that the all the Music business people were trying to push her towards, you know, to yeah. be like the the white version of uh, 
you know, one of the black women singers of the period, you know, they, you should have, but you got lost, you got terribly lost in that, all that. And how did you stop that, yourself from getting lost in that, you know, being in, in that how scene? How did I? How did I? Well, I, I went in and out of being lost. I got kind of lost in the 70s and partly was, you know, before I became well-known in the hippie scene for the comics, I was such a loser with women. Ter- you know, I had a terrible complex about being unattractive to women. But the same thing made me attractive to to good-looking women. Right. You know, and that, that was like a, a turnaround that happened like overnight. Suddenly, I was no longer, you know, this this guy that, that good-looking women just didn't even notice. Suddenly, they noticed me. They, I was interesting to them. All of a sudden, I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to change anything about myself or, you know, wear better clothes or become a more witty conversationalist or anything. It was all because of the fame. Not about the work. It was mm. about the fame. Mm. They were indifferent to the work, these young, attractive girls in the hippie culture. But but fame things, just, you know, it just fascinated the hell out of them. And so suddenly that really turned everything around for And what, me. what was the breakthrough for you that, that made you famous, go beyond kind of being an, an unknown? Well, it all happened in 68 with the advent of the first publishing of my comics in first in underground newspapers, hippie newspapers, and then with Zap Comics. Right. It all happened that year, and suddenly the, the phone was ringing, and, you know, people, you know, sleazy business operators, Writers tr- trying to get me to sign exclusive contracts, and then the guys want to do the animated cartoon of Fritz the Cat, and the guys want to publish my work in major New York publishers, and then it all happened very suddenly and quickly, and right at the end of the '60s there. And was that the same time that Gilbert Shelton was was doing the Freak Brother stuff? Was that, was he later than he you? was? He was. Uh, I guess he was just starting the Freak Brothers around that time. Yeah. He'd done Wonder Warthog before that. Yeah. So I just started the free parts around that time. And yeah, it was kind of the beginning of the underground comic scene and all that. No, you, yeah, you guys, you guys <laughs> d- definitely perverted the course of my life in a very good way. <laughs> so I got well, to thank it was you for good. that. Yeah, I no, you know, so. it was, that was teenage reading, all that stuff for me. And um, I think the spirit of it. Is, is still, well, what do you think now of all these objections about the racism and the sexism and the misogyny and the, you know all that stuff? What do you think? I, th- about I think all that? I think people misunderstand because, uh, and maybe I misunderstand. But if I look at your work, or like I say, stuff like uh, Brett Easton Ellis, people who are exploring the darkness. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I admire that because to me, that's a fuck like a fuck. It's like more, you know, it's safer. And, yeah, I guess what healthier. the problem is that 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 you know you're working in a medium that that was previously a mainstream mass popular medium, cartooning. So that you, you're exploring the dark side in this medium, which and still doing it in a way that looks readable and and, and it looks like a popular comic. Like when, when I first did Zap Comics, I took them around to the to the shops on Hate Street to see if they would sell it. Look, I said, well, this is just a comic book. We don't sell comic books here. Mm. <laughs> you know, it looked like an ordinary comic book. But if you're, talking about, if you're talking about the old stuff, we could build a, 
and I'm, I know people have, we could build a pretty good case to say Walt Disney was racist and misogynistic and, and you know, what Well, he you? was, actually. Yeah, <laughs> he was. <laughs> Disney stuff did actually contain some pretty, like, you know, yeah, bad racist stuff. But he, he wasn't, they weren't exploring it. They were no, they doing weren't. what they were doing. No. And, and to me, your work yeah. is, is an exploration, and therefore, yeah. I don't it's see not it. for everybody. Uh, yeah, it's not for everybody. Yeah, it's not. And it's, I didn't do it for everybody. I never intended it for everybody. I just did what I did. As, you know, use comic as a form of yeah, exploring my own personal, you know, uh, world and what for whatever for whoever could digest it and appreciate it. Well, the and reason the do. reason I, it doesn't alarm me or offend me is I think you've always been quite outspoken and forthright in saying. Yes, I have anger towards women, or yes, I have you know, yeah, that's right, complex feelings around sex and sexuality. And anyone who says they haven't is a fucking liar. <laughs> you know, I've never met anyone right. who's, who's completely worked through their their relationship to sex and sexuality. <laughs> Great, I, I'm very happy to hear you say that. <laughs> no, but it's, it, it's unusual to do it in public. That's all, right? You know, it, that's right to. to wear that on your sleeve is yeah you're asking for trouble you're but the reason the man the reason that you're you're popular is because i think people look at what you're doing and it kind of gives us permission to go there and go okay so what's my relationship to this and you know does this turn me on does this offend me i mean either way it's touching something inside you you know if it turns you on it's touching something if it offends you it's touching something they're both worth looking at yeah, the, the the key word there is popular. I, not sure. It's funny. I have this reputation, this name that far exceeds the actual like sales figures of my work. <laughs> except except for Genesis. Other than that, none of those books that I did, none of them ever sold in enormous numbers. You know, I know fucking Stephen King. You know, it just yeah. didn't happen. I know Harry Potter. Yeah. You know, just that never happened. It's, you know. People want to turn me into like the Disney of the of the new culture and all that, but just it couldn't it couldn't work. My work is, as you say, is much too quirky and personal. Yeah. So like the, the biggest selling books that I ever did, other than Genesis, would be like twenty thousand copies. You know, nothing huge. Yeah, yeah. I didn't make a fortune off that stuff, off the publishing of it. Mm. In fact, I lived very modestly up until the original art started becoming valuable to certain. You know, wealthy collectors. Other than that, I. But you are, you are also, Mister Crumb. You are, if I may say this, and if you're uncomfortable, I'll cut this out of the uh, the final podcast. But you're a shit salesman because you tried to charge me twenty five fucking pounds to do a book cover. Of course, you're not rich. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I said to our mutual friend when you because. Because when we first, you said, yeah, I'll do it. And I said, how, uh, you know, how much is that going to cost? And you said, oh, I don't know. Uh, my agent deals with that or something. And I, so I was like, oh, fuck, I hope it's, you know, hope I can afford it. And then you sent me the bill for, I think, 25 pounds. And I spoke to our mutual friend and I said, I think he's missed a couple of noughts off this. And, and he went, yeah, maybe you better write to him. So I wrote to you and you said, uh, okay, you drive a hard bargain. I'll charge you 50 pounds. <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. Funny. Which but, was you a, know, amazingly generous of you. Really well, but, you know, you, you, part of it is you charge people according to what you think that they are actually the scale of their work. And I think that your book that you're putting out, is not going to like, you know, be a big mainstream bestseller. So how am I going to yeah. charge you like a thousand 
dollar pounds or something or something like that. And if I'm going to do it, I'm certainly not going to like squeeze you because <laughs> you know I'm sure the the uh, royalties or whatever you got from that book, you know, have probably not exceeded much no, over no, what the book I, cost I, to put I made, out. I made money because if I paid you fifty pounds, my, I got my last royalty check and it was sixty three pounds. So I'm thirteen. Right. Pound, I'm thirteen pounds <laughs> up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> See, so you know, yeah. I, if it was something corporate thing, I might charge more. But you know, but, you I, know what it what it illustrates is you know, and clearly you're not in it for the money. Otherwise, you got, you'd have gone and worked for Disney. But it's not what you're about, right? I I, I couldn't. No, you know, I, it wasn't, wasn't even a matter of choice. I couldn't do it. I I worked at the greeting card company. I was young. And I just had it with that. I thought, I just I'd rather be a fucking hobo. I can't do this. So what happened when you, because for me, dropping acid the first time is, is a way more important moment than losing my virginity, which was fairly shit, to be honest. What was your first acid <laughs> trip like? Because, you, you know, you certainly said that that was huge yeah. in changing your writing style from a more straightforward it, illustrator. To, it was June of 1965, and it was, you know, it was still legal then. So mm. it was the good stuff from Sandoz Pharmacy. It was the purest stuff you could... You know, that, that there was an LSD for many years. Oh, you're not the first and, person on this podcast to have sampled that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it knocked me for a loop. It was like, you know, St. Paul on the road to Damascus, you know, mm. knocked you off of your ego horse to some degree that was just let leave you speechless. How, how did you even encounter it? Because it certainly wasn't mainstream then. It was pretty underground, wasn't it? Yeah, I was kind of sort of on the fringes of the the proto-hippie subculture in Cleveland. Right. And this woman that that I knew was my age, this young woman, she got this stuff from a psychiatrist. Yeah. Yeah, it was legal. Well, that's how how Casey got his, right? As as I understand it, from getting paid 50 bucks to go and take it for the CIA or something. Oh, that's right. Yeah, he was involved in army experiments Mm, or something mm. like that. Yeah, but um, so you know, it's, it it spread from uh, through the psychiatric community and to some degree in America before it was made illegal. Yeah. But then the fact that Timothy Leary was like, you know, broadcasting that everybody should take it that alarmed the government so much that they had to make it illegal in 1966 in the United States, which is too bad because that meant all legitimate experimentation would have stopped. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, and then you had like homemade, you know, LSD labs turning out all kinds of dubious quality drugs. That I and mean, I took some crazy drugs that people claimed were LSD. I don't know what the fuck they were, what they put in them. That's the you bad. Know, brown, that's the bad brown acid. <laughs> all kinds of stuff. I don't yeah. know what it, you know, blood or acid and all that stuff. I don't know what the hell it was, but yeah. I don't think I ever had anything quite as as good and pure again as after that first time. But it was maybe it was just the fact that it was the first experience. I don't know, but wow, it was something. It was something. I remember I I took it on Saturday with my first wife Dana. We both took it, and then I had to go to work on Monday. I I went into the green card company and I 
I just looked around. I, this is just a cardboard cardboard world. What is the people are just living this fake existence? I would, and people were looking at me funny and saying, "Crum, are you okay? Are you having a problem?" And I said, "No, I I couldn't talk. I didn't know what to say about it, you know." <laughs> and yeah, everything changed. I, I never was the same ever since. And you know, it was a, I still remember very well that the break that that caused in me from. Mm-hmm. Oh, my whole previous life, as you said, that was much more important than losing virginity. Yeah. <laughs> and when I when I met my uh, girlfriend, my, my uh, which was about five years ago, one of the, literally one of the first things I said to her was, "Listen, if I ever tell you to take ayahuasca, don't take ayahuasca." And of course, that's the worst thing I could have said. So fairly soon after, she took ayahuasca and went back, yeah went back to Paris. And I think it, yeah, she'd been working very successfully in the beauty industry. And I think she went back and just went, this, this is all shit. I can't do this anymore and became a starving uh, artist. And, you know, uh, um, it, have you taken ayahuasca? Have you taken that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've taken lots of the wow. plant medicines. Uh, um, I don't, wait, what do we do? Tell, do tell. What do you think? I mean, it's different because I was taking acid in, my, you know, when I was 18, 19, 20, up till I was, I think I stopped when I was 28, probably. And that was huh. the most profound, you know, way beyond anything I could imagine. And then I didn't do any psychedelics till I was 50. And then I just started, uh-huh. started taking ayahuasca. Hmm. And then I took yeah. acid again because I thought, I want to see what this is like from this perspective. Yeah. And I've got to say the acid was really fucking boring. Boring. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this is amazing. Whoa, Nelly. It felt wow. really, really two dimensional. And I, for me, acid was, uh, I mean, it changed my life in perhaps in similar ways to how you're describing in that I think my worldview shifted on its axis in a very dramatic way, but in an uh-huh. ex- exterior way. Whereas I would say the plant medicines I've done, like ayahuasca, are much more inter, very personal. It's like meeting the ultimate shrink who knows everything about you and holy shit there's no lying there's no bullshit there's there's no what was the context what was the context in which you took it were you with somebody who helped you to guide you yeah yeah yeah. no i've i've taken it seven times i think always always with a a good team of people to look after me um yeah And you know that's huh. what I say to anyone who's interested in that stuff. For God's sake! Did you take it at home or did you go someplace? No, I went somewhere. I went yeah. somewhere. I took five yeah. meo DMT, which is the buffo toad from the Californian toad. I smoked that last year at home with a guide. But yeah, always, yeah. With, always with a guide. That I think you start. Yeah. yeah. Even the first right. time I took acid, man, that was I was huh. so lucky because the guy who sold huh. sold it to us for like mm. one pound a hit. Yeah. For eighteen hours yeah. of madness, he said, "Have you done this before?" And we, you know, we were like, "No." Uh, yeah. And he said, "Okay, I'm staying with you." And he stayed with us for about oh. all night. And he talked us oh. through each stage. You know, this is the this is oh. where you're coming up. This yeah, you is, are lucky. You yeah. are lucky. Yeah. I I never had anybody like that around me when I took LSD. I was always completely on my own, and and so I went to all kinds of hellish, horrible places, and almost always ended up getting sick and throwing up at some point. Yeah. That was always a cathartic moment for me on LSD. Yeah. And once I took it in Cleveland in 66, in the circumstances that I still question to this day were very sinister, and that was like the worst LSD trip I had. And it was, I reached some point that was so hellish, 
And I remember telling myself, you have to forget this if you want to ever be sane again. You've got to forget this, what mm. you've just seen, what you've just become aware of. Mm. Put it out of your mind. And I did. So I have no idea what it was, wow. like what it was that I made myself forget. But I was with these people that I, thinking back on reflecting on over the years, I think might have been some sort of weird government agent of some kind or other who came to Cleveland set up this house, very temporary, in this big old house in Cleveland Heights. So you got a fancy house, but it was obviously a temporary set up. Him and this, his girlfriend and this scientist guy, weird scientist guy that was with him. And they would invite young people over to their house and give them this drug in the house. And then talk to you in this way that was like, just plunge you into some bizarre depths of, of hell. Mm-hmm. I went back there after that time I did LSD there. I went back because I was curious. I went back to see the guy again to try and psych him out. And he, meanwhile, he had another young person there, younger than me even, that he had given the same drug to that he gave me. And we were sitting in the other room smoking pot. And this guy that gave us the LSD, his name was Pete Cornell. He was in the other room with this young guy. And I suddenly heard this like blood-curdling scream. And I went in the other room, and the young guy they had given the LSD to was like curled up in a fetal position, and this guy Pete was like hovering over him, like talking to him. And, and then he turned to us, Pete turned to us and said, you have to leave, you have to leave right now, get out of here right now, in this very rude way. Wow. Oh, what? Yeah. No, leave. You, you must leave right now. So we left. I, was, I never saw him again. I don't know what that was. But thinking about it later, I thought there's something really weird and off about that. Mm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, yeah, no, I mean, I've had some, <laughs> some weird times on acid. But yeah. I mean, I, I guess you're blessed because I wonder if, if you hadn't had your kind of gift of of being able to draw, how would you have exercised because I, you know, I look at your work and it's a trip, man. I mean, it's yeah, it's a very yeah, different. Well, you, was, you see films where they try and portray people tripping, and I thought Brad Pitt did impossible. quite a good, quite a good job in um the last Tarantino film. But it's very difficult. In, in what film? What uh, film? Brad Brad Pitt takes acid in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the last Tarantino film. Um, and oh, I, I haven't seen that. Not seen that. I thought he, yeah, he got you know he got some of what it huh. it's like to to be tripping, but huh. but. Your work is shows the inside, I think, you know, because it is, and some of it's not a very nice trip, clearly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was heaven and there was hell, both. So, what took you to the Book of Genesis? As because that's a big body of work. The, the story how I ended up doing that is kind of mundane. I, I mean, I had this idea of doing a satire on Adam and Eve, doing a send up of Adam and Eve, and then. Uh, I was talking to my friend Dennis Kitchen about it, who is a, used to be a comic publisher in the United States and then became kind of a publishing agent. And he said to me, why don't you just do all of Genesis? I said, ah, that sounds like an awful lot of work, Jesus. And then he said, well, what if I shop the idea around at some publishers and can get you a big advance? Would you do it? I said, well, I'd shop it around, see what you, see what you get. So he came back to me a few months later and said, well, this W.W. Norton is willing to pay a $250,000 advance. How about it? Okay. Yeah, I said, all right, I'll do it. <laughs> he, 
<clears throat> so, you know, four years later, it didn't seem like such a great bargain, but, you know, that got me started on it. And once I started, I realized, oh, this is going to be a lot more work than I thought. I yeah. thought it'd maybe take me a year, but it took me four years yeah, to do the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine. But it was an interesting project. I, you know, don't regret doing it. And do you think a lot of your stuff, you know, your the the stuff you've been working through around sex and sexuality, does that come out of being raised in a Catholic environment? Well, I'm sure that has a lot to do with, with the particular twists of my psyche, having uh, had been taught by the sisters of the Catholic Church for, you know, what, four years of my, you know, primary education. That yeah. <laughs> certainly has something to do with but having a somewhat, you know, crazy ideas and attitudes about women. And is that something that you, I mean, you know, do you feel at peace at this time of your life? You say you're, you're drawing less. So is that because you've worked through some of these things? I don't know if it's peace or just old age. You know, part of it is the the decline of the sexual drive, you know, the the decline of the libido. And that's like, who's some 19th century guy who said that, when you're young, your sexual libido is like being chained to a madman. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. I've heard that expression. It's a very, very good expression, isn't it? It's a yeah, really good the description. Excessiveness of it, the the compulsion, the need to to get on a woman is was just so obsessive. And and then on top of that, to have some like you know uh, quirky, odd fetishes and stuff that you're embarrassed about, and but you still have to act it out. You've got to act it out somehow. Mm. So, you know, I had I had this quirky thing that was like Tourette's syndrome. It was just I would just be overtaken with the impulse and have to do it. And no matter the risk, I would have to do it. Like guys exposing themselves on on the street or something. I had to, you know, go around and jump on women. I had to do it. <laughs> I couldn't stop myself. I think that's what that's what repression brings about, isn't it? And you know, I mean I've worked with sex and sexuality for a, a good twenty five years and there's no one who doesn't have a kink or a quirk or a fetish or something if you dig That's in there. That's interesting. That's most most interesting. people are frightened to go there, and then they see it, they see other people. Do you think it's mostly people. men? I mean, do you see it in women too? These quirks and kinks. I think it's mostly no, a male thing. I think there's a I think there's a there's difference because there's different ways that we're shamed. But but man, we're all shamed. We're all repressed. We're all. <laughs> yeah. Freud said that he found that masochism was so common in women, the women that he saw as that he started to realize that it was actually in women it was he considered it normal wow. a certain level of masochism right <laughs> but that's not something that can be openly discussed women can't go around saying hey i'm masochistic because there's too many crude characters out there and say okay great i'll beat you up you know yeah. <laughs> so yeah. they, they can't yeah they can't yeah. that's they can't be brought out in the open. This just can't be. No, but there's you I, know there's no space anywhere where people can talk without fear about their sexuality, and as long as that's absolutely. the case, then we're going to have people you know who are acting shit out because they're unconscious, and that's why I say I think what you're doing, com- you know, if you if we compare it to, oh, it's not fair, it's it's ridiculous comparing putting you in the same bracket as Disney, but Disney's doing something without any consciousness or exploration, whereas I see you working through shit and you're doing it publicly, which I think is incredibly, <laughs> incredibly brave because most people hide it away. And if you hide it, it, it gets worse. I don't know if it's brave or just a compulsion. Even while I was doing it, while I'm drawing big-ass comics or 
devil girl the whole time I'm drawing it. I think, why am I doing this? Yeah, Who yeah, is yeah. it for? You know what? Am I crazy? What? You because know, I as soon as I started doing those openly sexually explicit comics in the late sixties, lost half the readership. The females lost them all, mm. almost all the like maybe two out of a hundred that could could tolerate, let alone enjoy it of of the female of the species. You know, so it was certainly not uh, uh, in my own best interest uh, as a commercially or career wise to do that, mm. <laughs> and. You know, lost a lot of the men too, and I got a lot of shit, not just from the women, but from a lot of men saying, "Why are you do putting these, you know, personal indulgences of your of your fetishes in your in your comics? It's not nobody wants to see it, nobody cares about it. And that's true. I mean, what's more boring than other people's personal quirks and fetishes? You know, and there was a cartoonist, an artist who made fetishistic comics like Stanton and John Willie, the bondage obsessions or sadomasochistic comics back in the 50s and 60s. You ever see any of those? No, no. They're, they're quite compulsive and tedious because they just they repeat the same obsessions over and over again in hundreds of pages of comics that were just done for, for guys who were especially interested in those particular fetishes, bondage or certain kinds of sadomasochism, you know, dominant submission stuff, you know. You know, uh, dominatrix whipping people and leather and all that stuff, you know, all that quirky crap. And these guys did these comics and, and cartoons about them that just were very tedious and repetitious. So, you know, I always, that always kind of worried me a bit about just going <laughs> compulsively drawing my own particular quirks and stuff, you know. So there's that aspect of it that I got a lot of criticism for from men as well as women just hated it, but some men said just you this is not gonna get you anywhere, you know, doing this putting this in your comics over and over again. I think so it's I you know, know, it I think it's I, I would take a stand against something that promoted hurting people, right? And I I don't you, see you don't want to promote things way. like that. No, no I, I I was always conscious I'm not promoting this, I'm not making this look heroic or cool. Yeah. I mean, the, my characters who did that sort of stuff were always like <laughs> portrayed as creepy little, you know, <clears throat> homunculus geek, Mr. Snoyd, or, you know, <laughs> characters like that or not. Yeah, you're not making them I mean, look attractive. <laughs> no. No. They're not role models. Yeah. No. But, you know, I, I admit, I got sexual pleasure out of drawing that stuff, of drawing the, the Mr. Natural doing stuff to Devil Girl. That gave me great sexual pleasure. But this is this it. is the fucked up thing, man. I bet a lot of the people, certainly the guys that were judging judging you for exploring your your fetishes, yeah. were were the guys whacking off to really hardcore pornography, which I find much more disturbing. The shit that goes, you know, goes on in that world. I, yeah, I don't even know what goes on in the pornography world anymore. I haven't looked at it recently. It's all on the internet now, so I don't do the internet, so I don't know what's on there, but. I mean, the old days in the 70s and 80s, 
<clears throat> I knew people that were involved in the pornography industry, the Mitchell brothers and all these people that, you know, had these you know, theaters that showed porn movies or girls who worked as, in, as dancers or, you know, strippers and stuff like I knew a lot of people like that. And the whole, the, the pornographic films, I, I just found them very boring because the guys that made them, that made those films, were sleaze bags. They were, they were not mm. into personal expression. They were into making money yeah. with something like lowest common denominator pornography that, you know, that for wh- whoever John Q average, like a porn customer was, you know, <laughs> whoever yeah. that was. Yeah. You know, so, so they were, I, I found them t- a total turnoff. I, I never found them yeah, erotic no, I, at all. I, I really feel like I dodged a bullet because I know so many guys who are addicted to porn and, and I'm the same. It just, I, I've always said, <laughs> why would, why would I watch a film of someone fucking? It's like watching a film of someone eating cake or something when I'm hungry. You know, I don't want to be watching a film of it. It's <laughs> worse than that. It's watching some people acting out something for, for a cameraman yeah. where it, and you, as a, as, a, as a sensitive person, someone who and some knowledge of human behavior, sees all the underpinnings, what's really going on behind the scenes. The, the somewhere off camera, there's a fluffer so that the guy can get it up for the camera, and the, and the yeah. girl, she's probably on drugs, and God knows what. And, and you know, so you just, <laughs> that always for me was the the problem with that stuff, and and and. Work it, doing some like convention. Okay, here's the cum shot, and you know, yeah. and then blah. Yeah. It was oh, just sordid. Yeah, the, the porn scene, very sordid. Yeah, <clears throat> I spent time hanging around that for a while in the seventies. I knew a lot of. It was a kind of a crossover in the seventies, that, that wacky decade, the seventies between that kind of the sex scene and and places like Plato's Retreat in New York, where they just had mattresses on the floor. Or people would come and have like big group orgies and stuff. And 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 what's his name? Goldstein, who had the the screw magazine, Al Goldstein. So there was a, a crossover between that and the kind of underground comics culture, hippie culture. And a lot of hippie girls I knew that worked in the various aspects of the sex industry. Yeah. I, I had this friend Diane Hanson. She's great. And she says the same thing you said, just because she's very knowledgeable about male sexuality. She said that she's never met any male. She's <clears throat> because of having worked in the industry, she knew thousands of men that never met a single one that didn't have some kind of quirks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's you know well you what well, most people will hide it away because it's it's considered shameful and then you never get to work it through so it gets bigger and darker and more likely to kind of jump out when you're least looking for it you know yeah that's and then right. it can be dangerous that's right that's right but how how does that how is that resolved i don't know i don't know any way to resolve that stuff by shining a light on it right you know you shine the light into the darkness and that's what i mean i see people like yourself shining light light into the darkness and other people get freaked because they're going, don't turn that fucking light on because it makes me think about my own darkness and that makes me feel very uncomfortable. So you're an evil sex freak. (laughs) Then it also became, it became starting with the feminist movement, it became politicized. Okay, before that, okay, the the, the bad old days, 
you had the basically puritanical repression, religious mm-hmm. repression of all of that, you know, of any, you know, the Victorian thing of, you know, uh, never showing anything. It's all behind the scenes, behind closed doors. Yeah, they used so to put any, um, they used to put little skirts on piano legs. So that piano, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I never yeah. got off on a piano leg. <laughs> right, right. Piano legs, and that never did anything for me. But anyway, so then, like the feminist movement in the early 70s, then all that stuff, anti-pornography, all that became political, became feminist liberation and, and the oppressive women and all that stuff. So then, and now you have the LGBTQ thing, you know, and it's, so it's all, it's so, it's, I don't know, it's, it's become very complicated. I, the, the problem for me is where any of these things stop discussion because it's decided that it's wrong. And I don't think that takes humanity further. I think, you know, I mean, for example, I had, quite a touching conversation with someone yesterday who had voted for Brexit. And I don't know people who voted for Brexit, or I don't hang out with them. But actually having the conversation, Uh I realized I've just demonized anyone that voted for Brexit. I've not sat down and talked Uh to them. And so I think Mm -hmm. we need to have, we need to maintain a culture where we talk about shit, even if we don't agree with it. The minute I you make totally something, agree with you. you know, I you're wrong. Let's, let's you. we should we shouldn't publish this. We shouldn't yeah. talk about this. You're wrong. Let's yeah. let's throw you off Twitter or whatever. Then it just goes yeah. underground. It doesn't yeah, go it away. Just, but there's all these people that want to set political agendas, and that and that gets into the mainstream, you know. And then in academia or in the media, so then it has this like correct ways of, of discussing things where it becomes like a 1984. Uh, kind of uh, double speak language that you know, oh, what a mess <laughs> well and then it's you know and it's not a coincidence let's face it it's not a coincidence that trump is in power now because i think you 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 get too far into political correctness and you squash all the dark stuff down and it just explodes in the kind of rabid underbelly of america or britain's the same man you know we've we've got the same yeah same, yeah. same fat evil right-wing nazi fucks running <laughs> our country <laughs> you know it's just they went to eaton <laughs> but what um yeah, I, what what do you see you know just one final prediction from from robert crumb um what do you see happening next week you know i think the whole world's holding its breath yeah good question i don't know i have no idea what's going to happen no idea but you know those all those gun-toting right-wing people that are out there now practicing at the target shooting ranges. <clears throat> I don't know what's going to. I mean, once this thing happens, either way, whether Trump wins another four years or or doesn't, those people are going to be causing stirring up some kind of shit. And then you have the other on the other extreme, the politically correct cancel culture <clears throat> on the other end. And there's there's just no meeting ground between these two groups. Oh, what the hell's going to happen? No, it's, it's it looks like a lose lose to me because either we got yeah that's right lose four, lose four, yeah. you know four more years of Trump and he's already talking about a third term. Donald Trump Jr. <laughs> Donald Trump Jr. is already talking about running in 2024. You know, so's so's, so's Ivanka. <laughs> I, th- I get think, Ivanka after that. <laughs> no, these fuckers are these fuckers are trying to set up a dynasty. So you got that as as option A, or you got option B, which is Biden gets in and 
yeah. all, all the fucking yeah. proud boys come out with their automatic weapons and uh, you, yeah, you know could be yeah, they could i don't know they they're could all, they're all standing yeah. by <laughs> they're armed they're armed to the teeth those yeah. people there they've been going out doing this whole covid thing they've been going out and buying more guns they've been cleaning out the gun shops you know yeah. in america yeah, yeah <laughs> we can't were, buy we even were ammunition running, we were running out of toilet paper here you 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 guys in america were running out of assault rifles running out of guns <laughs> assault rifles ak-47 yes because we were we were all shitting ourselves here <laughs> i don't i don't know i mean one thing that's interesting is that you know, the, the revival of the neo-Black Panthers, now, that, now there's a gr- big groups like in places like Atlanta, Georgia, of armed black men. Because, okay, yeah, we, <clears throat> you know, the, the right to bear arms, we agree. So that if the whites are going to do it, we're going to do it too, and they have every right to do it. Yeah. So I just read about, you know, a couple of years ago, there was a big march of these hundreds of these black men marched through Atlanta, down right down the main street, Carrying their rifles yeah. and nobody fucked with them. Cops yeah. kept their hands off them. Nobody harassed them. There are hundreds of them all marching, carrying their guns. Yeah. So, you know, Jesus, what the hell's going to happen over here? I don't know. Have you got family there still? Well, most of them are dead. I still have a couple relatives left alive. But you know, some members of the of the my mother's family in Delaware. They're, they're kind of sort of Trump supporting type, right? And then, but I have my brother left in in uh, San Francisco. I don't know what's going to happen with him. My brother Max and my nephew Avery. He's kind of caught in the middle of this whole mess. Mm. And uh, <clears throat> other than that, not so much. I have friends there. You know, they're all scared. Terry yeah. Swagoff, he's scared shit. Look, he doesn't barely leaves the house anymore. <laughs> Oh, yeah, no, yeah. That's, no. no that, and, and at this stage of your life, having, like I said, being part of the counterculture, is it depressing to get to 77 and go, wow, the world's still fucked? Because all that kind of optimism that maybe, you know, <clears throat> I, I'm looking at that as a younger person. Maybe the optimism has been mythologized, but it seemed that the 60s had such optimism. But It did, yeah. It was, there was a, a moment of extreme optimism that was perhaps quite naive. I don't know. What the hell? We thought that all those nasty guys who built, you know, nuclear weapons and stuff were just going to go away because we thought that they were bad boys. That we thought, you know, but we thought that once they all died off, that everything was going to be fine. I remember believing that when I was like twenty three, twenty two. You know, mm-hmm. mid sixties. Yeah, there was a moment there of huge optimism, that partly brought on by taking LSD. You know, we thought, wow, actually. We can we can go back to the land. We can get away from this whole, you know, uh, Cold War industrial conformist materialist thing, and just go back and to fundamentals. We can do it. It turned out to be you know much more complicated than we realized, and the the government did nothing to help or encourage those those ideals at that time at all. In fact, they did everything they could to undermine it and, and take all the wind out of it. As shown very well in that that film that just came out recently about the the trial of the Chicago Seven, you know the oh yeah, I haven't Abby seen Hoffman. that yet. It's good. It's very good actually. Mm. <clears throat> Sasha Baron Cohen plays Abby Hoffman. It's very good. Yeah. Very well done. Yeah, but that's why I always I always love that uh, that that bit of writing that 
Hunter Thompson did in, you know, I always thought Fear and Loathing was a kind of requiem for the 60s and his line about you could you could see where the high watermark, where the kind of wave of, of you know, the American dream and optimism broke and rolled huh. back into the sea. You know? huh. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, look, fingers, fingers crossed that it doesn't go all tits up too much next week. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, your your time and it's been a yeah, blast, okay. man. I've really enjoyed it. It's been um it's oh, been easy. Good. It's been a nice easy conversation. Um yeah. and a yeah. real treat for me. So thank you. Maybe we'll do it again sometime. You're Let's... a very good therapist there, Hyde, because I feel a lot better after talking. <laughs> yeah, anytime. Anytime. <laughs> You're good. You're good. I could use you. There you go, a little bit of living history for you in the form of Mr. Crumb, one extraordinary man. I enjoyed every second that I spent talking to him, and I hope you did. If you did, you know, as usual, please subscribe, um, smash that like button, I think the kids say, oh, that's not a like button, is it? It's a ratings thing. If you can give us five stars, that always helps. Uh, a review's even nicer for my ego. And to play you out, as usual, we've got the theme tune by me, Nick Van Gelder, Kenny Dickinson, Noel Langley, and Sean O'Gorman. Thanks a lot for listening. Bye.